may speak in different languages of men or even angels, but if I do not have love, then I am only a noisy bell or a ringing cymbal. I may have the gift of prophecy, I may understand all the secret things of God and all knowledge, and I may have faith so great that I can move mountains, but even with all these things, if I do not have love, then I am nothing. I may give everything I have to feed the poor, I may even give my body as an offering to be burdened, but I gain nothing by doing these things if I do not have love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag, and it is not proud. Love is not rude, is not selfish, and does not become angry easily. Love does not remember wrongs done against it. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices over the truth. Love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, hopes, and always continues strong. Love never ends. What a great day. It's so good to be with you. When I think of conversations I've had with people who are not Christians um, or people who are not engaged in church or maybe they haven't been in church most of their lives, there are people throughout the world who, who may not know Jesus and they may have only been to a church a few times, but there are certain stories throughout the Bible that a lot of people know, even if they aren't Christians or don't attend churches. And two stories come to the forefront of my mind and conversations I've had with people of stories in the Bible that they know, even if they've never attended churches, because people talk about them or they see pictures or paintings or they hear music about them. And the two stories that come to the forefront of my mind, and of course Jesus does, because there are stories of Jesus people know, but it's the story of the prodigal son and the story of the good Samaritan. Two stories that artists have painted about these for years. Musicians have written songs about them. And I don't want to unpack all of Luke 15, but I want to start out just for a moment talking about Luke 15 and the prodigal son, because this is a story where the word love does not show up in Luke 15 at all, but it's a story of God's love, stories of God's love. And the story of the prodigal son, it's the story of this father who has sons and there's the youngest son who asks for his inheritance and he goes out and he just spends it in wild living. And remember that parables are not perfect reflections of who God is, because in Luke 15, in the prodigal son, it's not that God is the father who waits on the porch for the person who's gone wild to come home. Because our God is a God, and you read throughout the Bible, he's a God who is searching out those who were lost, and he's seeking after people, and he's not just sitting there waiting for you to come back. He's out there inviting people to come to him. So it's not this perfect reflection of God, but it's this story of this God, this father, who has this amazing love that no matter what his sons have been through, no matter what they have done, they are invited to come into relationship with the father. But the story of the prodigal son isn't the only story in Luke 15. There are two stories that come before that. One story is a story of a shepherd who has 100 sheep and 99 are good. They have not left the fold. They are there. They're safe. They're secure. But it's a story of how a shepherd leaves the 99 to go pursue the one who is in need of salvation. And the story right after that is a story of a coin that gets lost in a house. And it's this woman who searches until she finds it. So Luke 15, Jesus tells three different stories about this, the love of God that is reckless and radical and goes to great lengths to save people and to throw parties once someone is saved. 
The way I've heard this described before is that the first story told in Luke 15 is a story of something that is lost outside of the house. The second story is a story of something that is lost inside of the house. And the prodigal son is a story of one son who is lost outside of the house and another son who is lost inside of the house. We have people lost all over the place. And I'm not suggesting in this room today that the word lost means that maybe you were not saved or you've never entered to a covenant, but you were lost right now in what it means to live in the mission of God and for the love of God. And the loving nature of God is inviting all of us to come to a deeper place. But Jesus doesn't tell those three stories because he had written this sermon and had been working for weeks or months on a sermon uh, for this one specific day, like in synagogue or in church, like what I'm doing for you right now. I prepare months in advance for what I'm going to be preaching. I knew six months ago I was going to do a five-week series on love in April of 2018. I've read books about it. I've been searching the Bible. I've been praying on this. The sermon I'm preaching today isn't a sermon. I just started thinking about this past week. I prepared it for weeks for the time on April 29th when I would show up at 1015, which is when our worship service begins, just by the way. 1015, all right? Some of you come at 1025, but I'm not hating on you, all right, because I have been a single parent when Casey goes out of town, and I don't care how late you got here, I'm just glad you're in the room today, all right? I'm thrilled that you're here. All right, so I, I, but I've been working knowing this was the day. We're going to sing some songs, have communion. I was going to stand up. I was going to preach this sermon. That's not how Jesus does this. That's not how Jesus does a lot of his parables. Jesus was responding to something very specific that had happened. And you're told in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, why Jesus began to tell these stories. And here's the context. Here's why he told three stories about the radical love of God. It says this, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. Which that right there blows me away all the times I read Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sinners were drawn to Jesus. And sinners should be drawn to the church today by the way we live and by the way we love. So tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and they were saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Jesus tells what arguably is the great, the most well-known story in the Bible, New Testament, as a response to Pharisees and scribes who were arguing and complaining about who Jesus was hanging out with. And here's what was happening. The radical nature of the love of God was being tested. They were putting Jesus on trial because the religious leaders of the day could not fathom that the Son of God could actually be someone who talked about the love of God and lived out the love of God the way Jesus did. Isn't that crazy to think about Because this isn't just a challenge 2,000 years ago for the religious people. It is for us today, too, that it is possible to be neck deep in religion and ankle deep in love and think because we have a toe in the love of God that we are fully immersed in the love of God. Does that connect with anybody in the room? Let me say it this way. Just because you don't hate someone doesn't mean that you are loving them the way God has called you to love them. Sometimes we hold up two categories. Either you love people or you hate them. There are a lot of other categories in between those two. Just because you don't hate your Muslim neighbor doesn't mean you are loving them the way God is calling you to love them. 
Just because you don't hate someone from a different ethnic group than you doesn't mean you are loving them the way God calls you to love them. Just because you don't hate someone who identifies in the LGBTQ community doesn't mean you love them the way God has called you to love them. Just because you don't hate your coworker, whoever they may be, doesn't mean you love them the way God has called you to love them. It's possible to be neck deep in religion and ankle deep in God's love and think we are fully immersed in his love. So today's the fourth of five sermons I want to preach about the love of God. And we've called this series Love Moves. There have been bestsellers written over the last few years called Love Wins or Love Does. And Don McLaughlin, who was here a couple of weeks ago, just wrote a book called Love First. Love isn't a word that's going away anytime soon, but as Christians, we've got to make sure when we use this word, we know why we use it and what we use it for. Love is not an idea. It's not something the church gets together and studies. It is something that we are called to live out. The love of God is not stagnant. It's moving. And I've told you in the last couple of weeks, one of my concerns is that we can become very selective when it comes to how we live out the love of God. But there's also a concern that there are people who think we talk about the love of God too much, yet it is impossible to ever talk about the love of God too much. It's just as we talk and embrace what the love of God is and how the Bible describes the love of God, we can't become selective how we want to live that out. You can't just pick and choose the places of love in the Bible that you want to model and and model your life after and then neglect some of the other places that call you to the radical love of God. Don McLaughlin says in his book, it is possible to, or or we need this challenge, to live God's unconditional love, we must live that according to God's conditions. To live God's unconditional love, we must live that according to God's conditions. And it's good for you to know, in the Bible, there are a lot of times when the love of God shows up, the word obedience shows up too. To love God is to be obedient to God. So there's, there's another place in the Bible that I want to unpack for you today. Uh, um, most, what's the most memorable wedding you've ever been a part of or been to? And if you've been married, your first response should be my own, all right? <laughs> Just so you know that. Your own should be the most memorable. When I think of weddings and things that show up in weddings, there are certain things or songs that come to mind. I think of the most memorable wedding I have seen or witnessed wasn't actually a wedding I was there in person. Uh, I remember I told you years ago the story of when I, um, I went skydiving about 12 years ago. And, and I was hooked to a guy, and on the way up in the plane, this guy leans over my shoulder. He's a professional skydiver. He leans over my shoulder, and he says, hey, when you go, he had to yell this over the engine of the plane. He was, when you go home, go to this website, and you can watch my wedding. So I got home, pulled up this guy's website, and sure enough, there he is with his soon-to-be bride, and they're on a plane going up in the air, and a minister is in front of them, and the minister has them reciting their vows, you know, and, and the minister looked at the man, and do you take this woman to be your wife? And he says, I do. And then the minister looked at the woman and said, do you take this man to be your husband? And she says, I do, but if you want me, you have to come and get me. And she jumps out of a plane, and the guy jumps out after her, And the minister and the camera crew, they are falling at 120 miles per hour in the air as they exchange rings falling, all right? And then they give a kiss in the air falling at 120 miles per hour. And when they safely landed on the ground, the minister is there to pronounce them husband and wife. One of the wildest weddings I've ever been a part of. And I, I've told this at weddings before, trying to find somebody at some point that will say, that's what I want to do. Mark and Megan, we got a med- wedding coming up in just a few weeks for you. 
it's not too late. Let's give it a shot, all right? When I think of weddings, I think of my best friend, I've told you before, he, he, was, he was always a prankster and he put lighter fluid on the unity candle of his brother's wedding. And this was back when women wore a lot of hairspray. I don't know how that girl didn't catch on fire, all right? When I think of weddings, I think of the weddings I've been a part of. There are brides and grooms and dresses and tuxes. There's sometimes candles and now maybe sand. There's music and maybe music is played over speakers. Maybe there's a band or someone who is singing. There's scripture that is read. The family and friends are there. And if the Bible is read, most of you have been in weddings, and if the Bible is read more times than not, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the chapter on love. Love is patient, love is kind. Will you be my Valentine, right? <laughs> it's the love chapter. Now, if you were to ask Paul one day, hey man, thanks a lot for writing that chapter on weddings and marriage. He, he would probably look at you and be like, what are you talking about? I never, I never wrote about, I didn't give some wedding liturgy. But when it comes to weddings, usually this is the, what we go to. And it, and it works for weddings. Don't get me wrong. But I want to help us see why 1 Corinthians 13 was written and what Paul had in mind and what the context is to, to help us see how love functions in the Bible and in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bibles open or if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 13, right before that, 1 Corinthians 12 is a chapter about the Holy Spirit. All right, in your Bible, the chapters in the Bible that use the Holy Spirit the most, Romans 8 refers to the Holy Spirit 22 times. 1 Corinthians 12 is 11 times. There are no two chapters in the Bible that talk more about the Holy Spirit than Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 12. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about the worship service and he's talking about the, the church in Corinth, a church that was greatly divided. And he is trying to give them a working understanding of the Holy Spirit so that they can live out the unity and the peace of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, no one can confess Jesus as Lord without the Holy Spirit. So though I believe that the Holy Spirit descends upon people and indwells people in their conversion, I do believe that the Holy Spirit is roaming the earth. The Holy Spirit is the one convicting hearts, inspiring, uh, inviting people into a relationship with God. So it's not like you have to figure this out on your own. And then when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit for the first time works in your life. The Holy Spirit is working throughout the world. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the Spirit gives each person in the church a gift. And for the rest of 1 Corinthians 12, it is how the Holy Spirit has called the people to come together in a community to live out life as one body, this unified mission, understanding who we are in God. I can't remember if it was five or six years ago. I did about a 20-week series on the Holy Spirit in this church. And one of the reasons I did that series is that for a few years prior to the series, there were people, and a lot of them were older people, who would come up to me and they would say, Josh, one day can you preach a series on the Holy Spirit? Because I no longer believe what I was taught about the Spirit growing up, but I do not know what to replace it with. And my, my whole thing about the Spirit, sometimes I think we have not given the Spirit much attention because we grew up in churches and we grew up in a culture of the Enlightenment when we want to know how things work in order to tap into the activation or the work of whatever it is. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, the church is not in need of a perfect understanding of the Holy Spirit to live into its reality. We are in need of a working understanding of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's trying to give them a working understanding of the Spirit. I don't need to know how a car works. 
to trust that that car can get me to a place. This morning, I got in my driveway, I turned on the ignition, and if you were to ask me at that moment what else happens to make my engine work, I don't know. If you opened up a hood today and gave me a test on all the parts of an engine, I would fail. I can read. I can see windshield wiper fluid, or this is where oil goes. I can read, but if you were to start asking me where other parts are, I would just kind of like do my hand like this and be like, man, there's radiator springs is over there, and there's carburetor county, and I, I, I don't know how it works, but I trust in how it works. I don't need to know how the Spirit works. I don't need a perfect understanding. I just I need to trust in the fact that the Spirit is moving. So Paul's teaching them about the Holy Spirit, trying to ground them in a reality of the working function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And in 1 Corinthians 14, after this chapter on love, Paul picks back up on spiritual gifts and on the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 14, he's talking to the church because apparently there are a couple of specific gifts in the church that people were coveting and people were abusing. Because what was happening in the church of Corinth can also happen in the church today, that sometimes we crave our gift. What is our gift? But it is possible for us to crave to have a gift from God more than we crave the giver of the gift. Or to focus on what the gift is that God has given us more than we are focusing on who God is. If you're in the room today and you want to know what your spiritual gift is and how is God bringing you to your life and what is that passion or thing God has called you to, you, the, what you need to do is not focus on what the gift is, trying to figure it out. You focus on who God is and God can make things abundantly clear. And in 14, the problem is there's prophecy and there's tongue speaking that's being abused. And not only is it disrupting the church, it's hindering their witness to the people outside of their church. So in chapter 12, Paul is talking about division and the Holy Spirit and who the Spirit is and who the church is in the Spirit. In chapter 14, he's trying to ground them to teach them that the Spirit of God is working in your life for the edification of the body. So at any point you think you have a gift and it is not working to edify the body and encourage the body, then it may not be from the Spirit. And then right in the middle of chapter 12 and 14 is this chapter on love. And I think sometimes we forget this context because even today the church can get caught up in disagreements and in grumbling. And if we do not have love in its proper place, all kinds of division can happen. There should be no dialogue or disagreement the church has without coming together and saying, first and foremost, we got to remember the love of God is in place. That is why we are in this. Because time and time again, you've heard it in your own life and we've read it throughout history. Chapter 13 is thrown away and it's like chapter 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians and it's about the vision, but if love isn't in its proper place, all hell can break loose, right? So chapter 12 ends with this. Here's the last verse of chapter 12 in verse 31. But you strive for the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. So all this talk about the Spirit giving gifts and all this talk about the one body, he's saying here is a more excellent way. Chapter 14, verse 1, chapter 14 begins with this. You pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that of prophecy. But before any of that, you pursue, pursue love. And then right in the middle, you have chapter 13, this chapter on love. And here's how it goes. The first three verses, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic power 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, I hand over uh, my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. It's like Paul's gone into poetry mode. If you do not have uh, it, it's, it's this rhythm, like if I do this, but do not have that, then I am, I, I am nothing. And there are all these great things that people could be about, but if love isn't in its place, it's, it's, it's nothing. It, it's not everlasting. There are a few different Greek words for love. And I know today we use love for a lot of different things, right? There are a few different Greek words for love. One Greek word for love was eros, eros. And this is a word that doesn't show up in the New Testament, but in Greco-Roman world, this is a word that they used for love a lot. It was about physical desire. This was erotic kind of love. And, and this is the kind of love that when you listen to a lot of pop cultural music and how they speak about love, it's usually like in the form of what the Greeks would have known as eros. It's physical desire. When I was in eighth grade, I, I had this girlfriend. And I remember, like we, we were girlfriend, boyfriend for like one day. And I was already using phrases like, you're the love of my life. And we were meant to be together. And we already had a song that was like our song. It was from a group called Jodeci. You know what I mean? We were, it was, <laughs> uh, it, and it was a relationship that lasted for three weeks. And then we broke up. And that was the longest relationship I had in all of middle school. A lot of times I listen to songs and I even, you know, I read books in our culture of how people talk about love. And then I sit back and I reflect and I'm like, man, that's a love that's being described. But that's not the kind of love the Bible calls us to. And I, I, I hope people, especially in the church, aren't buying into that kind of love. That that's the kind of love God has called us to. Another kind of love that does show up a few times in the New Testament that would have been known in their culture as well was a love called philos. And this was what we would describe as like brotherly love or deep fellowship. This is used in John chapter 11 when Jesus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the very next verse is they see Jesus crying in John eleven thirty six, 36. And they're like, man, we, he loved that guy. This was this brotherly love, this deep kind of fellowship. But then there's a third kind of love. And, and I bet most of you know what this love is, agape. And it wasn't a love kind of, this wasn't the word for love that, was invented by the church and created by the church. It was a love that was used in the Greco-Roman world, but the church took hold of this word. And it's like they said, hey, this is the word we are immersing in the gospel. This is the word that's gonna describe the love of God and who we are called to be. It's a love of deep covenant, of deep trust. It described a relationship with God. It described all that God did in and through Jesus. One person described agape love like this. It was a love that reached out to those who did not deserve it a love that put the interests of others first, a love that forgave people and started over with them and a love that sacrificed itself for others. This is the kind of love God invites us into. So then Paul goes on to list 16 statements about love, 16 of them. And in some of these statements is this is what love is and other statements is this is what love is not. So I'm gonna read through all 16. And I want you to sit and reflect as you hear each phrase and reflect in your own heart. How are you doing at living this out? This is going to be fun, right? I don't need no elbows going into a spouse next to you, all right? Which one they need to pay more attention to. But as the 16 come up on the screen, I want you to maybe reflect in your own heart. A couple of weeks ago, I preached about the different kind of responses to Scripture. 
That there are times we have a wow response of, wow, God is amazing. There are times we hear scripture read and our response is, um, yeah, I don't, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna follow that one. There are times we hear the Bible read and it's like, man, that's exactly what I needed. There are times we hear phrases from the Bible and our response is, ouch, like that really hurts. That's really challenging to me. So I'm gonna read all 16 of these and ask you to reflect on them and which one do you think you may be living into the best right now and which one is the greatest challenge for you? So let these soak in. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Any of you shooting at 100% so far? Anybody in the room? It does not insist on its own way unless it's Sunday lunch and then we insist on our own way, right? It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Don't we serve an amazing God? If you were to replace the word love with Jesus, every single one of those statements would be true. If you want to live into the deep love of God, you focus on the face and the heart of Jesus, and he'll take you there. All right, so will you just leave that on the screen for just a minute? Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul didn't make all these statements about love to that church to affirm what was in that church. Paul was writing this stuff to a church that lacked these things in the life of their church. Because if these things do not exist in a church, the way we live out our mission is on the line and our witness is on the line. Because a church is not going to be held together in the unity and the peace of the spirit if these things don't exist. And who is going to want to come from the outside to live into something where these things do not exist? So I guess my question for you today as we leave, because I, I, I always want to place something in front of you that like calls you into a certain kind of life, that changes how we live on a Monday morning. Is as you look at the list, like which of these do you need to focus on in your prayer life or in your life this week? Maybe you need to sit down with your family today and lay out these things and have them speak into your life of where they would like to see you grow in some of these areas. And as a church, we need to focus on the church. Where, where are some of these things in us? Because there are ways this church needs to display the love of God and be very mindful of how we're living this out. I want us to be the kind of church that is seeking God in a kind of way where if somebody walks in this church with tattoos from head to toe, with blue hair, and they smell like who knows what, that we will be a church that will not run from them but run to them. Because the love of God is inviting all people into his kingdom. So where is the love of God inviting you and calling you to this week? I want to ask the elders of the church and prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places to receive people today. 
We'll have elders in the front to receive you. If there's something you want to bring in front of this church, we have prayer leaders in a few different stations throughout this room. If you just need to go to receive a blessing from God, a word of God, a truth of God, they are here for you. Can we stand together as a church and let's sing this song as an anthem?